This is Coffee and Cardiology. In this podcast, we sit down with the faculty from the University of Washington Division of Cardiology to discuss the very latest in diagnostics, therapeutics, and as a special bonus, we ask what makes our cardiologists tick. All right, here we go. Uh, Dr. Zachary Steinberg, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Zach, I believe that you have the distinction amongst all of the Division of Cardiology at the University of Washington of having spent the longest time in training. I could be wrong about that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. So could you tell us a little bit about your journey in medicine, long as it has been? Well, thank you, Jim. Uh, that's not a distinction I'm particularly proud of. I'm not ashamed nor proud of it. I think it just happened to to turn out that way. Um, yeah, so my, my journey in medicine, I guess there, there's various points where I could start. I will say that in medical school, I thought I was going to go into surgery, and I, I came kind of down to the wire. I actually had various mentors write um, two letters, one saying that I would be great for surgery and one great for internal medicine, which was obviously weird, but I I hedged long enough that the, some of them felt compelled to just write two um, because I knew I wanted a, a hands-on approach to my career. Um, but I, I went into internal medicine for a few reasons. One, I, I recognized that I was not a great passive participant uh, watching surgery, and I recognized many years of watching a lot of things without really getting to do it, and I was itchy to be... Uh, to get more responsibility, I think, as soon as I graduated, and I felt like I would get that with internal medicine, and I was interested in it. And then the other thing was I felt a little bit more of a departure from physiology. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. Of course, there's tons of physiology you have to be familiar with, depending on the surgical subspecialty, but it seemed to be much more focused on anatomy, at least up front, a lot of, a lot of memorization. So I went into internal medicine, and then knew I would go into a procedural type of field or, or hope to go into that. And I focused on GI at first, um, largely because my dad's a GI doctor and was academic for many years, made a great and interesting career for himself. And so I had a really good um, role model to that effect. And I'm close with my dad. But again, that physiology thing crept up on me. And by the time I, I really got exposed to cardiology in my second year of residency. It was all done. It was just very obvious to me. I just swallowed as much information as I could about the heart. And that ended up leading me to the University of Washington, where I started my first of three fellowships in cardiology, in general cardiology. And I knew from the get-go that I was, um, you know, an interventionalist at heart. Um, I just wanted to do things with my hands. And, but what I didn't know is that I also had a love of congenital heart disease because I didn't really know what that was. I not had any exposure previous uh, to my excuse me, my fellowship. And honestly, if I were at a different fellowship, I probably wouldn't have had much exposure. The University of Washington is very unique. Um, with only really a few other institutions like it around the country where congenital heart disease is so prevalent in our 
population that we treat here that every fellow starts taking care of patients with congenital heart disease from the time that they start on the inpatient wards. We just have a large enough and needy enough population that it just comprises a percentage of those inpatients. And so that's how I was first introduced. And it might not have gone further had we not had two really amazing mentors, both great educators, great people who lived those full lives that you like to get in mentors. They had fun at work. They had fun out of work, very engaging and very generous with their time. Um, I'm referring to Karen Stout and Eric Krieger, who were the only two ACHD docs at the time. And I was swept up in it. Again, the physiology grounding me, the anatomy, the complexity, but it's also an intimidating subspecialty. There's a lot to know. There's the historical significance and the era effect on surgeries. And um, so it wasn't without some amount of hesitation that I considered that. And then as I thought about it more, I didn't really know how to combine that with the interventional side of my personality where I wanted a hands-on component. Um, and then entered uh, Tom Jones. Tom was, and until very recently, was the head of the children's cath lab at Seattle Children's Hospital. I didn't know it at the time, but a, an internationally renowned physician for really helping to birth the field of pediatric interventional cardiology and had been involved in almost every major device study for the last three decades. And I sat down and first talked with Eric and Karen and said, geez, I see you have someone that does interventions on your patients, and he's a pediatrician, and that seems to make sense, but do you think there's a role for an adult interventionalist? And they sort of hemmed and hawed, and <laughs> I could see their faces contorted in such a way that I was about to be given bad news. But rather than saying no right out, they said, well, we, we really don't know. This is a question for Tom. And so I set up a meeting with him and sat down and discussed it with him. And he said, geez, you know, I think there could be. I think that makes sense as long as you had the right training. And that then became the next question, uh, what would a training program look like? I came to know a few other physicians in North America that were doing this as adult physicians, uh, one down at UCLA and one up in Toronto. Uh, they were sort of half a generation before me, uh, and they both made very successful careers and already were well-known in, in the community. And I ended up speaking with both of them uh, and uh, more with Karen and Eric. And one thing led to another. And I started to work with the team here at UW on the training program that might give me the option of training in this. Uh, and I say the option because no one said, OK, we'll do this, and this is how we do it. They said, OK, well, your first step, we think, is this. And if you're good enough at that, we'll do that. And if you're good enough at that, we'll do this. And that's how we'll do it. And what that entailed was, first, I would start with interventional cardiology. Then I would do adult congenital heart disease, which at the time was a one-year program. But there was already talk about um, this becoming an ACGME uh, endorsed 
training. And as I got further along in the process, it became two years, which actually was a great benefit to me. But I would do originally whatever ACHD training program was deemed appropriate at the time. And then I'd have to do a congenital interventional fellowship. And what that looked like was a little bit mysterious, but it clearly hinged around Tom Jones. And though I had very little direct communication with him in those early years as a general fellow through Karen and Eric, I realized that, you know, it, this was going to be merit-based. I had to show that I was trainable, that I had the work ethic for this. And I had a lot of heart-to-heart -heart conversations with Eric, especially saying, you do realize what this means for your social life, for, for your life Outside of these walls, the training involved, the amount of dedication that Tom puts into this, and you know, which I really appreciated. You kind of have to have someone shake you a little bit and say, "Hey, you know, think about life outside of these walls." But I, I recognized that, and I went in eyes wide open that nothing would be handed to me, and I worked. And my feeling was, if I wasn't suitable. For for it, I would probably know that before other people would. It's rare when I feel like I've done a lousy, when I th think I've done a good job and other people think I've done a lousy job. I usually pretty much know when I've done a poor job at something. And, um, and I don't like to do that, so I'd rather just not head into that direction. But I found that I was, I think, I think I was mentally built for the cath lab and, and I got great training in ACHD. And after my interventional training, as I started on the path towards ACHD, I continued to work with Tom wherever I could. And conversations moved closer and closer towards, well, when we have you for the year, you'll get X experience. And I, I kind of knew at that point that, that I was being welcomed into it. And, and what ended up happening is, um, really before ACGME uh, mandated ACHD as being, as being under their purview, but after it was clear that it was going to, our hospital decided that we would be an early leader and they offered funding for fellows for two years. And this was great because the real question was how I was going to get funding for a third year, as in congen uh, interventional was one, ACHD was two, my congenital interventional year being three, how would I get funding for that? And because it fell under the funding of a second year of ACHD, um, that took away any kind of stress for paying my own way or figuring out how I would be funded. And I ended up spending the last year of my training in the pediatric cardiology um, lab, interventional lab, with all four of the pediatric interventional attendings and I was a pediatric interventionalist for a year, which was unbelievable. And then as soon as that year ended, um, I started um, at the University of Washington with just the adult population with Tom Jones as my major partner. But, but really, over time, and with the knowledge that Tom was towards the end of his career, had a growing relationship with now the new cath lab director, uh, an amazing human, Brian Murray, and he and I have been great working partners. And this really, I think, was not I think, I know, this was Tom's vision. And he, he rolls things out 
sort of as on an as needed to know basis, but he's quite methodical and he really had done a great job um, helping to develop the ACHD program with Karen in the early years and protecting um, access for patients by bringing on partners when need be. And that's how I got here. See, I think that you need to actually be very proud of that, not ambivalent about it, being the, the most extensively trained, best specialized, most super specialized of all of us in this division. Because just what you said, it took that dedication, it took going into it with your eyes open, and really it took a pioneering spirit to be able to bring this, even though you mentioned two people had sort of done it before, never been done here. And you had to go through a lot, and you had to do a lot of coordinating in particular to make this thing work. Yeah, all of that's true. I guess when I say I'm not, it wasn't, it wasn't my idea to train extra. And my wife does tease me or used to tease me back in, in my training days that I decided to choose the hardest thing I could find to do <laughs> just to see if I could do it sort of thing. But it really wasn't like that. And uh, and I hear what you're saying. It was fun for me. I, you know, in these very upper levels of education, I mean, you put a lot of yourself out there. There's the financial impact by not making as much money. And man, I got my first job at age 39 and a half, you know, with two kids and a third on the way. So, you know, these are real things, but I wouldn't have continued to do it if I didn't really enjoy the process along the way. And I think that was part of it for me is that I wasn't just doing it to be something. I was doing it because I liked what I was doing at the time and learning about it. Um, also knowing that the profession I was going into, like every profession in medicine, but very much so in congenital heart disease, really is a profession of lifelong learning because we're still learning the impacts of the procedures, the surgeries, the medical care, the decision-making that was done 30, 40 years ago today, which means that the things I'm doing to patients now, I'm going to have much clearer idea of what was right and what was wrong in 20 and 30 years. And that error effect doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon, as is the case in so much of medicine, but very much in congenital heart disease. So it sounds like one who goes into this has to sort of love both the uncertainty and the expectation of future knowledge. Yeah, I would hope that that's something people love no matter what they do. It's just in <laughs> their chosen point. field. Good point. <laughs> do you think in, in looking back and having ACH or interventional cardiology before ACHD, was there an advantage to that? Why, why did that route instead of the other way? Well, in all honesty, I think it was a little bit luck. I mean, we, we just didn't know how to do it. Um, and there were talks about doing ACHD first. In retrospect, this was clearly the right way, um, uh, and as we've discussed programmatically about how we would train someone else, myself, Brian, the rest of the ACHD team, um, but really me and Brian, we think that, uh, and Tom, Tom's very, very much been a part of these conversations all along, it, it seems that 
you bring so much more to the table by understanding wire manipulation, how to move catheters, interpreting angiograms, panning the table, all of that sort of basic skill set for an interventionalist is very valuable when you walk into a pediatric or congenital type of setting because you're focusing on a wider array of procedures. You do much fewer per year of any procedure. You know, I finish with about 450 PCIs in my one PCI year. And in my one congenital year, I did maybe 15 pulmonary valve replacements. We do at a pretty large institution between 15 and 25 pulmonary valves a year. Whereas my ad adult only interventional structural colleagues do about 350 to 400 TAVRs a year combined. So when you're dealing with um, less experience with any one procedure, a vast array of anatomy and physiology, that's where people are really focused. You need to focus your attention on that. Good decision making, interpreting on the fly, and it's nice to have maybe not second nature with one year in the lab, but, but you're certainly farther ahead of the curve. Now think about the pediatric folks that go into interventional. They have done all that anatomy and physiology. They lived and breathed, they've lived and breathed it for three years. Now they're coming in to learn the interventional skills behind it. So I think it can be really overwhelming if you try and do all of it at one time, sure, it can be done. I, you know, I don't know that there's a perfect way, and maybe someone who's done it the opposite way comes back and says, I made a great career, and this is why that's great, and I think that's reasonable. But having lived this and having come at it with a very solid coronary and interventional background when I hit the PEDS lab, um, I was able to see all the tools they're using, many of which have been co-opted from the uh, adult interventional labs, because that's where the money is. That's where um, innovation is coming out um, because companies can make money. And, you know, honestly, I came in, I said, what kind of coronary wires are you using? We've retired these years ago, and here are the better ones, and they've since switched a lot of their wires. I said, mm -hmm. here's a guide extension. You guys don't have any reach here. What about a guide extension? They say, what's a guide extension? What's an 014 microcatheter? How is that helpful? And so slowly, we, I mean, this collaboration, we, I like to call it cross-pollination, um, I think has benefited both labs. Um, and, you know, now that I've been practicing for, I mean, my sixth year, and there are still close collaborators of mine over there, and they'll ask me about equipment, and I'll ask them about equipment. I go over to their lab. They come over here. We see what the other's doing, and I think it makes us stronger. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And... You know, it, it strikes me that what you're doing is, is very collaborative and very creative and isn't necessarily for everybody, um, although I think a lot of people would look at what you do and, and might think, gosh, that sounds really exciting and fun and innovative. Um, tell us a little bit about what your week is like. I mean, you may, it, obviously you're not in the cath lab all the time because there's only 15 cases, but... Uh, what what sort of things do you do per week? But then also, what are the other procedures that you're involved in besides the pulmonary valve replacements, which you mentioned earlier, and which are pretty standard now. I think most of our listeners are probably familiar with that. But 
there's a lot more that you do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think in speaking with others who are involved in this profession as well, and now there's a handful of us um, around more what I consider my generation. Um, we have our mentors we looked up to, we look up to, been doing this 10, 15 years ahead of us. And those of us which all have clustered around the last three or four years of coming out, um, and as, as we talk to each other, it's pretty clear that even at a really large ACHD center like UW, um, you're not going to get enough procedures to fill a week of procedures. Um, they, come, they come and go, you know, everything waxes and wanes. Um, and we have a pretty sizable ACHD population, and we do a good amount of procedures, but you're right, it doesn't um, fill my entire week. What my week looks like currently is I have a day of clinic a week, and that is all congenital heart disease patients. That's what I do. That's my day job, if you will. I see patients coming for procedures, and I counsel them about that, but I also see patients longitudinally, patients I've followed for years, even as a fellow, who um, have continued on with me. Uh, and that's a very busy clinic. And I have three days a week where I'm in the cath lab. Two of those days, I can book my own cases. So those are, would be the days I would book a, a procedure um, from either my outpatients or from a colleague referring me. One of those days, I cover the hospital for the hospital needs, which includes some outpatients who need caths uh, who have not had a designated physician from our, our internal group. And then all the inpatients and anything that's an emergency that comes about. And that really keeps my chops with coronary procedures, with um, advanced support, and pericardiosynthesis, a variety of indications for right heart cast, the whole gamut. Um, but it doesn't include things that we would classically think of in the structural world as like mitroclips and tabbers. And that certainly could become a skill set of mine, but it isn't right now because I have partners that do that and they're great at that. And I have other things that I've focused on. And then I have one day a week, which I usually use the air quotations as non-clinical because of course every clinician knows that their clinical world bleeds into every aspect of their life, <laughs> nights, weekends, and of course your non-clinical day. Um, but that's also time for me to focus on writing, reading, uh, mentorship for fellows, everything else, and podcasts, although this, <laughs> this is my first one. Um, so um, what does my cath lab time look like on my two days that I can book cases? Uh, I really wear two hats in this hospital now, or as far as I sort of identify myself as this. Adult congenital heart disease, which is what I was trained for and how I came into this job. And then within the first year and a half of becoming faculty, I was approached by um, uh, a close friend and colleague now. Uh, then I only knew him as a fantastic physician and a, a well-loved individual in the hospital, Peter Leary, who heads our pulmonary hypertension group. And he sat me down and said, hey, I have a proposal for you. There is a group of patients who have chronic blood clots in their lungs. And classically, we've only been able to offer them for surgery, but not all of them are surgical eligible. And there's this new procedure that was 
It was actually pioneered in the States decades ago and had pretty poor outcomes. Um, and well, I take issue with that a little bit, but it was perceived as really poor outcomes and the procedure was abandoned. And then the Japanese a decade later sort of exhumed this procedure and showed that it could be done safely and very effectively. And then slowly had been spreading from Japan across Europe and it made it to the US within a matter of a few years. And seeing as we had a big population of this, um, would I be willing to take on these patients to do what is termed balloon pulmonary angioplasty, essentially ballooning the disease off to the side for patients who were not eligible for surgery for one reason or another, which is about 40% of the patients that have this. The clot is just too far out um, in the lung for a surgeon to be able to reach it without cutting into the lung, which is a very bad idea in that organ. Um, and so I started working with Peter quite closely. Um, we had to figure out who was doing this. And then I, I largely consider myself self-taught. Self now, it takes elements of things that I was doing in the coronaries with gear. It takes elements of things I was doing for congenital heart disease patients where I would be performing interventions in the lung. But it, it's very clear. It's a totally different skill set that uses elements of both. But um, like any new procedure or in a new new organ, which I consider central pulmonary arteries and distal pulmonary arteries, very different animals. It was a big learning curve, and I started doing it, and I quickly began, well, how do I phrase this? I would say I came at the procedure with a certain amount of skepticism. Is this going to work? I'm doing a ton of this. It's laborious. It's... Um, it's repetitive, and then it's quickly become one of my favorite procedures because patients would come back and they would say, you have cured me. I feel amazing. Not everyone. Even if it was one person, I would have felt good, but it is the vast majority, and I can't tell you of a procedure that I do routinely where that is the, um, that is the feedback I'm getting. And I... It's a multi-procedural um, endeavor per patient. You can't get all the clot at once. So I get to see them repeatedly, sometimes six to eight to ten times over the course of many months. And so I get to follow up with patients, and they get progressively better, and their pressures come down, um, and their life is totally changed. Now, in my congenital world, I certainly see things that I do that people feel remarkably better. But a lot of what we try and do is prevent people from feeling poorly and prevent cardiac dysfunction by intervening on valves early enough. The idea is not to take someone who's really decompensated, perform a procedure, and make them feel amazing. The, the point is, the, the goal is really to find the inflection point at which people are starting to feel their valve problem or, or whatever it is their anatomic issue is, treat it then and, and prevent downstream problems. So this was really unique, especially since it's a disease process that's often overlooked. It's sort of hard to diagnose. It's not on, on the forefront of everyone's brain when people get slowly progressive shortness of breath. And so oftentimes people are just in and out of the healthcare system. No one's really figured it out until someone does. And by the time they get treatment, uh, they're really debilitated, many of them. And so... It's been very satisfying, and now 
nearly five years later, we're doing a lot of these. We're one of the highest volume institutions in the country, and we've opened our doors to teach other institutions as well and have made nice collaborations with that, uh, with, with other folks. And we're still learning, and we hope to learn from the people that we share our experiences with and vice versa. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and again, you're, you're continuing to sell doing all those fellowships here because you're, you're showing how you get to prevent disease but also treat it, and you get that full spectrum of patience and full spectrum of experience and, and sense of satisfaction. Yeah, um, you know, and, and if, if I could also, once again, focus on the training, it, my training helped me as training helps everyone. But and this is one procedure that I learned out of training. I had no idea I would do this. I had to learn how to read the angiograms. Um, that was among the most challenging. And, and, and where I was, um, that took years, actually, of doing this. And that's honestly what I focus a lot of people's attention on when they want to learn. I mean, most, most interventionalists very savvy with a wide variety of wires and balloons and techniques. Everyone brings their own experience, but learning to read an angiogram, what's a success, what's not a success, that's a big part of it. And that is just taking the time and doing it and reading what you can. So a lot of, and they would say, most interventionalists would say this, a, a lot of the learning continues. You just don't stop because no, one give, no one's giving you a diploma at the end. With that learning, like what were the steps you took to create that educational pathway for yourself with the angiograms, with the actual procedure? Like, are YouTube video? Like, what are you doing to like create that educational pathway? Um. So one of the things, no, uh, there there wasn't anything out there. That, so the first thing I did when Peter brought me our first case is I said, I don't know what I'm looking at. He showed me an angiogram taken in the central pulmonary arteries. And I say, well, okay, where is the disease? Point to it. And he says, I can't do that. And I said, I can't do that either. It's not obvious. I'm used to looking at angiograms where there are serious irregularities in, the, in a vessel that's narrowed. It comes in, starts from the sidewalls and moves in. That's not how this disease looks. It plugs up the vessel fully, and then it, it has all these micro perforations through the vessel like a sponge, and contrast moves through it. The vessel looks as wide as ever, but there is clearly something in there that's blocking unobstructed flow. Um, and so I, I had to, uh, we went down to the University of San Diego, who was another mm -hmm. earlier adopter of this. They've been doing it maybe a year or so before us just to as 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 guests there just to observe and i learned um a very valuable piece of information that served me um it really enabled me i think to to take on these cases and feel like okay i can take the next step and that was you have to you have to get a catheter into every major branch of the pulmonary vasculature and do an injection there and only then can you appreciate it um, and see where the disease is. And I've since learned that that's not even, A, it's not that easy to get a catheter into every single branch. They don't make any equipment for this. And B, once you do, you still may be fooled. And there's a few classic signs. And I just did it over and over. I, I looked at, I went back to look at what I was doing in patients. Because you do many interventions on a patient, you kind of have to get to know the neighborhood of the lung you're in. So Every intervention that I would do, and I still do, I look back on all the old interventions 
to get a sense of where I've been and where I haven't, and then you start to pick up patterns. How brisk is the contrast flow through the vessel? Can you see the veins opacify? How peripheral do the veins opacify? How to tell if you're upstream or downstream? And that's just part of it. Then it's getting into the disease, getting on the other side of complete obstructions, finding out when you're injecting very small amounts of contrast through a microcatheter, what a bronchus looks like, what a pulmonary vein looks like, what the pleura looks like, what an alveoli looks like, and what is the downfall of finding myself in these regions. And honestly, I think that there, this is, remains a safe procedure. It's not without complications, but the concerns that were initially held, that you start mucking around in the lungs, and you have uh, a substantial portion of patients that wind up on ventilators, ventilators in the ICU or who don't survive the procedure is extremely low with, you know, the right mindset going in, recognizing who's a high-risk patient and appropriate counseling for patients too, right? One of the things about this procedure I say is the, the higher the risk, the higher the benefit. These are sicker patients who oftentimes will feel the best when they get it. And the patients who are at lower risk and less disease often, I think, are at lower risk. I hope that to be true, but that's what my experience has been, um, and that's how I help to counsel patients. So you mentioned earlier that the perception when this was first introduced was that it was a failure and it was shelled, and maybe that wasn't true per se, but what do you think's changed? Why is it working better or perceived to work better now? Is it equipment, patient selection? I think yes for both. Um, I think the original patients were a sicker group. I think our equipment has gotten better. It was also a very small um, case series. I mean, small, relatively speaking. It was maybe 20 patients or less. And if a few have bad outcomes, that's a high percentage. Um, and these were patients with very few options. And I think different people practice medicine differently. There's different risk tolerance of physicians and proceduralists and surgeons. And there are those who don't like undertaking high risk and putting patients in that position. And there are those who see higher risk doing nothing or at least very high morbidity doing nothing and recognizing that even with high-risk procedures, there is growth, and we can learn more, and we can make it better. You may greatly improve the patient you're doing this on without knowing, and you may really hurt them. And it's up to the proceduralist to decide at what point you're not moving forward and making things better for patients and understanding more of the procedure you're doing. So I think there's just that risk tolerance too. And also, um, these are classically patients followed by pulmonary centers too. And, and maybe, maybe there was some difference there about referral patterns as well between cardiologists who have been used to for years 
doing interventions. And it was really started by pediatric cardiologists mm. that those first reports out from the East Coast who were used to working in a data-free zone, doing things on patients that they really only might realize the effect of downstream, some of which were not good and some of which were um, paradigm altering. And, um, and so possibly it came out of that. I, I just, I don't know, it's conjecture. Well, it just strikes me it's so complicated when any procedure fails or when any procedure is successful. And there's so many different things. Uh, we, you know, it, in our randomized trials, we try to control for that. But the reality is there's so many other extra non-controllable factors that play a role in all of these different things. And it's just kudos to the Japanese for resurrecting this and, and having the foresight not to, uh, to let sleeping dogs lie, but actually keep working on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the way we approach orphan diseases needs to be different than the way we mm. approach um, much more common diseases. They're harder to study. It's harder to show impact one way or another when you have fewer numbers. Um, as we as we discussed with congenital heart disease, there's an error effect as well. So it's it's a challenge. Yeah. So we've got people referring patients to you for pulmonary valve replacement, kind of the bread and butter usual stuff. We've got now people referring for pulmonary vasculature angioplasty. What other things do you do that our listeners can refer patients to you for? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, we've done a good job at, at the University of Washington in, in having a reasonable amount of overlap and skill set between interventionalists and also a reasonable amount of expertise uh, that we don't share with, with our colleagues. Of the things that I would say everyone at the University of Washington does very well at uh, complex coronary interventions. We do those routinely. Um, we have, I have a few colleagues that do chronic total occlusions, which is a, a subset and much more challenging, and they're experts in this, which I don't do. But all coronary interventions, um, I've had an amazing training experience, and I work at a very uh, complex center, and that has made Myself, my colleagues, my team, very good at this. Uh, so I do standard adult interventional cases like that. I also perform uh, alcohol septal ablations in our patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and I work with our hypertrophic cardiomyopathy team um, and do a number of these a year. Pulmonary valve replacements, of course, is not all I do for congenital um, Heart disease, I close atrial septal defects, ventricular septal defects, I stent coarctation. There's just there's also just a wide variety of procedures that fall under that umbrella, uh, including one-off weird things, systemic venous recanalization, creating holes where holes didn't exist, closing holes where holes shouldn't have existed. Um, under the umbrella of congenital heart disease and interventions, it's a lot of using tools created for one thing for another. So a good understanding of the engineering and products, and I work with industry to that effect. So give us some examples. I think maybe one that people might be familiar with are closing VSDs, and in 
until I guess it's been it's been a while now that VSD closure device has been available. But initially, we were just using not we, but you were using ASD closure devices to try to to close VSDs. I yeah. So so specifically for things that we see a little bit more commonly, well, I would say a lot more commonly in an adult versus pediatric hospital, but uncommonly these days, um, is a post-infarct ventricular septal defect. These are just a different animal from a congenital ventricular septal defect, and they're large. Um, and so we have limitations on, on the sizes of our devices, and they just make larger occluder devices for atrial septal defects than they do for ventricular septal defects, mainly because if a VSD is really big, um, it's picked up very early in childhood, and it is a very much a life-limiting uh, issue if it's not surgically dealt with early in life. So we just don't see patients with 30-millimeter VSDs later in life that would benefit from a percutaneous closure. If that's been around for years and years and years, um, it's quite dangerous to close them, actually. So... Um, so they don't really make a ton of devices for that, but they do make a device specifically uh, designed for these post-infarct VSDs that are under uh, humanitarian device exemption, meaning the FDA has approved them, recognizing this is serving a, a very important patient population that ha is nearly impossible to study. Um, the mortality rate is just very high from this complication to begin with. It's fortunately not that common after a heart attack, um, and rather than putting the device through a vigorous um, uh, a trial period, it, it recognized that the technology was being used for non-infarct VSDs, and it, it allowed certain modifications to make it easier to close these. And we have a running IRB to allow these on our shelves. So it's been in existence for a while, but but um, you know, it took someone monitoring the paperwork and keeping up with this. And so a few years after I started, I decided it was worthwhile having these devices on the shelf and have just been doing the paperwork. So we have these available, but still, we still sometimes put in ASD closure devices in a VSD because for whatever reason, we think it, it'll fit better. So it takes a certain amount of imagination when you're staring at a defect and you have an array of devices to try and figure out which one you think is going to fit the best. Yeah, and, and I just remember one time looking at an echo on a patient I had in the inpatient service and thinking there is no way that there's any possibility of closing this thing. I mean, this is just not not possible, but I'll do my due diligence. I'll call up Zach and like, well, maybe we could do something. And, I, you know, I, that's one of the things I've really appreciated about being here is that kind of spirit of thinking outside the box of saying, traditionally we can't, but you know what? Maybe we can. And at least going down a thought experiment, if nothing else, and looking at the whole picture and, and being creative. I, I mean, that's by far the best part of my job is, well, it's twofold. Um, I'd say one, yes, the creativity and uh, getting a problem, knowing that perhaps more well-worn or more, you know, more well-accepted treatment methods are not options for patients. That's first and foremost whenever you're really trying to determine what, whether or not we should 
do something rather than if we can. But it, once you cross that threshold and we say, okay, someone needs something, they're going to do better if we're successful than if we're not and they have no other option, then we get real creative and we think about how to get a patient through safely, what we think is going to work. Um, but the other part I'd say to that, which is my favorite part of my career, is working with people who think similarly because you can't do this in a vacuum. If you're the only person that thinks this way, you know, you don't, no one's going to send you a patient. No one is, is, uh, is going to talk to their patients about how we do this. And I, I personally love the way we practice medicine here in, in, our, in our whole group at the University of Washington in that we recognize there is a crime of uh, not offering patients therapy that we can do, even if it's high risk, as long as the alternative seems to be higher risk, which mm -hmm. is doing nothing. And not every institution think, thinks this way. Not every institution can. They don't all have the expertise. They know the safety nets may not be there in place. But they don't all do it. And I like the fact, not just as a physician, but as a sometimes patient, that there are places that offer hope and creativity and that think about procedures, not in terms of what, what do we do, what is this device meant for, and that's what we do, but what can we do, and who can we do it for, and how do we think about patients not as a data point in, mm -hmm. or, or how like or not like they are in, uh, as we look at literature and what we know about um, the therapies we offer, but just very individually how someone can benefit and whether or not you know, it warrants that kind of creativity. Yeah, and I, I do think that is a, a constant tension and challenge that all programs have to think about is integrating all these factors of local expertise and, and not just in the operator, but really the entire team. And for the individual patient, th that patient's risk tolerance, but that risk, as you said, the risk tolerance also of not doing anything. And I do think in, in a lot of ways, and I think we do this well in the interventional and structural realm, the idea that these procedures can be palliative. We may not necessarily extend somebody's life for a really long time, but we might vastly improve their quality of life. And even for a short period of time, that may very well be worth it. It might keep them out of the hospital. It might keep them at home. And in addition, it you know obviously improving quality of life for whatever time it is that that they have left. Now, it's a different societal level question to say whether this is worth paying for, but this <clears throat> sort of myopic view of the only outcome that matters is survival. I think we really miss something when we don't broaden our horizon. I totally agree. And um, one of my friends, colleagues, and mentors, Jamie McCabe, uh, has said something to me years ago, which has always resonated, and that is, we talk about survival with everything, but we don't talk about quality of life. Mm -hmm. um, when's the last time anyone demanded to see what the survival benefit was of a knee replacement? Mm. Right? Nobody questions why that's important. Why do we need to put a coronary stent in, you know, and call it only a success if someone lives longer? What if we cure them of crippling pain? 
that prevents them from being active and enjoying their life. Why do we minimize that? I agree. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, this has been phenomenal. We really appreciate uh, the time that you've taken to spend with us here. John Michael, um, I know you want to personally thank the good Dr. Steinberg as well. Every day. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks so much for the time today. This was, this was a lot of fun. Thank you, gentlemen. Excellent. All right, see you on the next Coffee and Cardiology.